So turn with me to James chapter 5. I was thinking about it this morning, or last night actually, um, I wasn't thinking about a whole lot this morning, <laughs> that it seems like these devotionals are out of James a lot. And that's because my small group's in James. And so every time I hit something, I'm like, ooh, that would make a good build devotional. Um, and so here we are. I want to read James 1, 1 through 11, and then contrast um, the heart. If you look at this passage, there's two references to the heart. One comes at the end of 1 through 6, and one comes at the early part of 7 through 11. And so I want to talk a little bit about these two, um, this contrasting view of the heart. So let's read it first and then talk about it. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put, the death, and put to death the righteous man. He did, does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the Lord is of for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and, you've, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So before we look too closely at the fattened heart, the fattening of their hearts and the strengthening of their hearts in those two verses, I'm going to step back and look at who the audience is. If you go to James 1, verse 1, the audience of the letter is the dispersed amongst the 12 tribes, um, or the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And so my belief and understanding of this passage is that this, this whole section is preaching to churched people. And when you look at James as a whole, you see him condemning a lot of people within the church community that are not um, living the lives of, life of believers. And so when you come to James 5, you see this exhortation to rich people, but not just rich people, but people who um, are, are not using their wealth in any sort of a way that honors God. Um, and he exhorts them pretty heavily. And then he turns at verse 7 and says, Therefore, be patient, brethren. And that word, brethren, brothers, is used throughout James. That's kind of the, it seems like the most commonly, um, common way that he just both shares affection and kind of relates like you are believers um, in this. And so he makes that turn. So I have a couple of thoughts on the difference between 1, 6, and 7 through 11. One, I think 1 through 6 is an encouragement to the brethren as well. When you think about like the book of Psalms, 
David constantly encourages himself by understanding how God's judgment is coming to those who wronged him. And so I think that's an encouragement. But if it were only that, I think the opening of that passage that says, come now rich, um, wouldn't be directed at people. It would be like, come on, Christians, the rich people are going to have this happen to them. He's not saying that. Um, and the you is an inferred you, but it still says, come now rich. Like, you people need to do this. And so there are people in this crowd who are within the church who are not shepherding their hearts in the way they need to be, and their hearts are fattened by the things of this world. Um, and so that's really the audience. It's people who have allowed the things of this world to consume them and to become stronger idols and think places of worship versus God. Um, and that could be any one of us if we don't shepherd our hearts well. And so let's look at some observations of the fattening of their hearts. And so it says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth, led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That fattening is like a bull or a, I mean, a bull is what they reference, but it's like an animal who is like fed really, really well, doesn't have any concept of why he's being fed, but it's because he's about to be killed and they want to fatten him up so that the meat's better. Um, that's the word picture that James has right here. Um, and so when you think about that and that as an analogy, like that's someone here on earth who is living in all of this luxury in earth and enjoying it. And frankly, in the United States, we're living in luxury. It doesn't matter what place you have in the United States spectrum of wealth. We're living in luxury. And if we're allowing that luxury to consume us, then we're like a fattened bull just waiting for the day of slaughter. That's scary. Um, and so what are some observations? I just have two. Um, it seems that this person is very much focused on the temporal. They're focused on what's happening here on earth. They're focused on gaining wealth on earth. Um, it says that you withheld your, the wealth or the, the pay from your laborers. Um, there's an element of like what I can get here on earth is more important to me than how I interact with the people next to me. Um, which is kind of the second observation, that they're actively focusing on the wrong things. They're actively looking at um, not relationships, not anything vertical. Everything is, is horizontal and everything is in their own flesh and in their own desire. And when you're doing that, your heart gets fattened. You need to be focusing on the right things. And so let's, let's switch over to verse 7 or 7 through 11 and look at some of the strengthening in your heart. So in verse 8 it says, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So this is the exact opposite, right? Like the, the focus is on the second coming of Christ. The focus is on the eternal and, what, and the comfort that comes from the eternal. Um, it's also active. You look at um, verse 5, it says, you have fattened your hearts, and verse 8 says, strengthen your hearts. They're both actively doing it. It's not like your heart got fat, your heart got strengthened. You are the, the active participant in it. Um, and so we need to be actively strengthening our hearts. Um, and, and what is this person marked with? I mean, the repeated word over and over again is patience. 
Um, there's also obvious, look, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Um, there's a, an intentionality around the relationships and not having the re- relationships be fostering of, hey, this is my life so hard, let me complain to you, but actually encouragement. Um, and so the, the part of this passage that really stood out to me was just such a contrast between the fattening heart and the strengthening heart. Um, and, and then you look at the whole sections, and it's just this exhortation to a person whose life is shipwrecked, or an encouragement to someone who's not, like, it's not like life is easy for the guy in the second half. But he says, be patient, be comforted by the coming of the Lord. Um, we have to do that by really knowing what that means. Um, it's hard to be comforted by something if we don't understand it or if we aren't excited about it. Like, and so we need to be excited about the coming of the Lord. Um, there's also an encouragement here. You know, the judge is standing right at the door. Um, there's an encouragement to the patient brother that the, the gifts that we think, the benefits we think that are happening to the people that are opposed to God are temporal. Um, and so we can be comforted by um, the fact that God will judge. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about the wrongs that are happening to us. Um, and so um, there's just a lot to be comforted here. And most importantly, and obviously as we've talked about this for 12 weeks now, um, the heart is central in both of these because the heart drives everything that we do. Um, and if our heart isn't strengthened, we're not going to, um, we're going to fall prey and fall and find ourselves being trapped by the traps of the person in one through six. So that's my encouragement. Um, it's been encouraging to me. It's been helpful to me. I know, um, as I look at this, um, I think it's easy to get consumed with things of this world. Um, I'm not sure that it's as easy to fall as far as this guy has fallen. Um, but man, I'm just on the edge of that cliff. And if I'm not strengthening my heart, I think it's very easy to just run down that path that the guy in one through six has, the rich. So, Lord God, thank you for your word. God, what a blessing it is to be able to open it up on any page and be comforted by who you are. Lord, thank you for the fact that you're coming again. Lord, this was written probably 10 to 15 years after you had left, and they were being comforted by the fact that you were coming again. And here we are 2,000 years later, Lord, and it's still a comfort because we know that you are preparing a place for us. We know that you will rule and reign here on earth. We know that this is temporal, and being with you is eternal. Lord, and what a sweet comfort that is, Lord, in your name. Amen. It's good seeing you all, you, all you men, and I, I love being here with all of you, and it's just a sweet ministry. I, uh, I need to start by just saying I'm a little bit nervous because typically the way this goes for me is about seven pages of notes equals about um, 45 to 50 minutes of a sermon. And uh, when I jotted down all the stuff that I was like thinking about, um, I ended up with 17 pages. So the way that I normally think, <laughs> we'll be done by lunch, okay? All right? So <laughs> we got enough coffee. One more. <laughs> One more cup for everyone. 
I can't wait to hear what that sounds like for people who are listening to the audio. If you had a video right now, everybody's evacuating. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> eject, eject. Uh, no, this will be, hopefully, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll only have an hour, so I can't go over, but um, I might not get to say everything I'd like to say. Um, but I do, I do think it'll be opportunity for us to just interact and just to walk through um, some issues, particularly just launching from the qualifications for a deacon. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13 is going to be really our focus this morning. And um, I want to walk through that. Um, most of the bulk of our hour is going to be looking at the qualifications, but at, by way of introduction, I'm going to make a few comments kind of about hermeneutics and about uh, interpretation. And um, then we'll just dive into the qualifications. So grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you remember, verses 1 through 7 are the qualifications for an overseer. And the words for overseer would be, you have three major terms, pastor, overseer, and shepherd. I'm sorry, and uh, elder. The shepherd is the pastor term, obviously. And uh, the overseer is even in the Latin, the bishop. Um, and then the um, elder would be the term for uh, that's, that's uh, used in First Peter 5, the elders among you. Um, then in verse 8, he starts with the conjunction likewise, and he makes a comparison between the fact that there are character qualifications for the men who give oversight to the church, and there are character qualifications for the men who serve in the church and carry out the function of the ministry in the church. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, in comparison to what he just said about the elders, likewise men, uh, deacon must, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted to much wine, fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's a rich passage, and uh, it's extremely encouraging, extremely helpful, and um, these qualifications are very clear. It's also helpful to even remember real quick by way of introduction, First Timothy, you know, this is written most likely by all the best uh, reconstructions of what happened in Paul's life. It makes the most sense to put First Timothy and Titus in the period between Paul's two imprisonments. So 61 to 62 AD would be his first imprisonment. That's when you get stuff like um, Philippians and Ephesians, and that's um, uh, the imprisonment that you read about um, in, in Acts. Then you move on, and Paul has continued ministry, and that's when you would have the writings of First Timothy and, um, and uh, not Philemon, sorry, First uh, Timothy and Titus. Then in around 66 to 67 AD, you have his final imprisonment, and he's executed under Nero, and that's when you would have Second Timothy being written. That's actually an interesting uh, and a helpful point because 
deacons are already a practice in the church well before Paul wrote 1 Timothy. How do we know that? Well, look real quick at, at Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 1. And this is a fascinating um, display of New Testament ecclesiology because the church is already practicing this office. It's already established. It's already something that would be part of a um, biblically robust and equipped local congregation as planted by Paul. And he writes this letter even before he writes 1 Timothy. He writes to Philippi who already has elders and deacons. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So they already are practicing it. This is already a part of New Testament ecclesiology um, before Paul even writes the pastoral epistles. So when he writes to Timothy and he writes to Titus, he's explaining to them in clear fashion what he's already been modeling for decades of church planning. This is what God's already... He has told Paul, and this is how he says, this is the way the church must run. This is the way it ought to be carried out. In fact, if we go even farther back to the before Paul's conversion, I believe it's right to recognize that there is a prototypical uh, function of deacons in Acts chapter 6. And so look at that real quickly, and just to, by way of refreshment. Look at Acts chapter 6. You see these men who are entrusted with some incredibly important functions of the church. Um, when you think of an elder and deacon distinction, do not think of um, more important or less important. What the deacons are carrying out are, is absolutely critical for the life of the church. If deacons weren't carrying out this function, if you have legitimate spiritual and tangible physical needs being unmet in the local body, then the gospel is actually drugged through the mud. So this is actually really, really important. Although it would be right to say, to recognize that if, if, an, if an elder is not character qualified, the, 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 the threat to the church is going to be all the more greater. But we cannot say that somehow the elder-deacon distinction is someone of greater importance, lesser importance, as though deacons are somehow just, oh, it's just, you know, optional ministry. Look at what's described here in Acts chapter 6. Verse 1, you've got this dispute. A complaint happens on a part of the Hellenistic Jews, and they're complaining against the native Hebrews. So Hellenistic Jews would be Jews of um, Jewish descent, so they have Jewish lineage, but they are part of the diaspora. They've been scattered throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. They're fluent in Greek. They're, 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 Gre- they're Greekized. They're Hellenized in their culture and Hellenized in their language. And so now they come back for the feasts, and they come back to celebrate. And then you have in Jerusalem this, you know, uh, just... Massive assembly of all the Jews coming to worship. And there's a distinction between the Hellenized Jews and the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the serving of food. Okay, now you think, well, what? what? Isn't, that a, that's a, isn't that a pretty easy fix? I mean, just get over it already. Like, just give, they're hungry, so give the, I mean, these, these, these widows are all part of the, 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 the church. It's just that some are Jews who are coming for the feast from a Greco, uh, Greco-Roman culture, and some are just local to Jerusalem, uh, but they're all part of the church. I mean, just get over it already. Just give them, give them what they need. Well, look at verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So it's not as though this is an unimportant issue, right? Remember what James says, this is true and um, undefiled religion. Um, to care for widows and orphans and to you know, keep oneself unstained by the world. Well, 
Why orphans and widows? Well, because that's the only two of the three that apply from the Old Testament, right? What did the Old Testament practice? They always took care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow. That triad carries over to the New Testament, but there's no such thing as an alien, because we're all aliens. <laughs> and in Israel, an alien would be somebody who moved to Israel for the worship of Yahweh, and they don't own a plot of land. They are a Gentile, and they are a proselyte to Judaism because they worship Yahweh as the God of the universe who's revealed himself through the Old Testament scriptures. So they don't have a way to make a, a living in a promised land waiting for a Messiah. Divvied out to 12 tribes. So the alien who comes there is in a similar boat, even though they might be able to work as a hired hand, they are in a similar boat as a widow or an orphan in the sense they're unable to provide for themselves. So the economy of Israel provided for those who were part of the people of God at a national level, aliens and orphans and widows. And now the New Testament church comes along and says, we're going to make sure that we meet the needs of our orphans and widows. And so here in Hebrews, in, in Acts chapter 6, it's very clear. This is critical. And the elders, the, the apostles are not saying this is unimportant. They're saying we can't take the time that such an important task takes without neglecting the Word of God. So we've got to make sure that this need is met. So you understand, you understand the dilemma here. I'm trying to help you understand that the, the, the critical nature of what an elder is called to do and the critical nature of what a deacon is called to do. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 3. <clears throat> Skipping ahead there, sorry. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And imagine if the apostles just said, Okay, all this bickering about the Hellenized widows and the, the, the Hebrew widows. I mean, like, can we just, okay, let's just go over there and just take care of this problem. And it's just easier than having to, like, wade through all the other, all this other stuff. You know, just, just, just take care of that ourselves. I mean, sometimes that could be tempting, couldn't it? It's important. You delegate it, it goes south. You, you use the entrusted money of the church and that's been called to meet the needs of the saints, and you put that in the wrong hands, and somebody just, oh, this is just, now we're wasting resources. Oh my goodness, this is just more complicated. Should have just taken care of it. It would have been less work. No, they say, it's actually, it's actually that important that we don't neglect prayer and the ministry of the Word. We've got to find people who are trustworthy enough, whose character we can be confident in, and that the congregation can be confident in, that when they give sacrificially for the progress of the gospel, they know that funds aren't being mismanaged. So, verse 5, this statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Verse 7 is, is what becomes a refrain in the book of Acts. Six times Luke documents the Word of God and the Church of God growing and becoming and increasing. And this is the second one. And before he moves on to the section where the church spreads to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, he's documenting the establishment of the gospel shining brightly and robustly in Jerusalem, and that includes deacons. And that's interesting. So... Let's just quickly make our way back over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And by way of introduction, I think that's helpful to kind of have that in the back of our minds as we listen to, to Paul tell Timothy about uh, how the church ought to be 
established, and as far as this office goes, the office of deacon. Now, you should have, um, by way of handout, uh, do we have a, I didn't even grab that handout. I'm just, it's just dawning on me. Rachel printed up a handout for us. I will make sure we get that before the hour is up, because Rachel printed up an, um, a handout that I have that um, Matt sent me yesterday. Um, do you mind, did we give that out? Did you? The, like, prayer thing? Yeah, the no. prayer. Yeah. Oh, oh you get that right already. Yeah. Okay. Okay, perfect. You guys have that. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, for bailing me out on that one. Um, okay, good. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. So, uh, Rachel printed those up yesterday for us. And No, no, no. I, I, that's fine. I just want to make sure you guys had one. I, I, have, I have it here. Um, this is a prayer guide that Matt and Scott put together, and just really helpful, because it just works through these qualifications and thinking about your own character and evaluating your own character in light of what a, a deacon must be. Um, what I want to do is, and, and so I, I think that's going to be, it's, it's, it's actually so well done that it speaks for itself. We don't have to like walk through uh, that necessarily, but I, want you, I wanted you guys to all have that. Um, but what I did want to do is I wanted to just kind of introduce um, a discussion. that uh, There's actually a, a debated issue here in First Timothy chapter 3. And so it's actually helpful to understand, well, what do we say when we talk about deacons? And the, the, the real debate comes from verse 11 uh, when Paul uses the word women. In verse 11, is this, is this women, is that referring to, um, well, there's actually three interpretations. Uh, is it just meaning women in general? Uh, that hardly merits discussion because it's encapsulated on both sides by the discussion of deacon. Uh, verses 8 to 10 are talking about deacons. Verse 12 is talking about deacons. Um, so the women in general, <clears throat> I mean, I, I wouldn't even know what that meant if he was just talking about women in general. You know, as if some woman in the church is, you know, uh, is, is struggling with gossip. I mean, you just kick her out because she, she can't be a woman in the church anymore. I mean, it's like, what does that mean? It's like, well, yeah, you would help her, you would shepherd her. But this is a character qualification. So the, the real two, the two reasonable interpretations here would be, is this referring to a deacon's wife or is this referring to deaconess? Um, a female deacon, and that's really your two, two major interpretations. And the reason why I want to do this up front, I was talking about this with Matt um, uh, this last week. Um, you know, I, I've, and I've had a view on this for quite a while, and, and I know the elders of this church have had a view on this for quite a while, and, and not necessarily the same view. Uh, and, and that's okay. And we knew about that, and we talked about that last summer. And what's helpful about that is even just walking through what happens as you interpret a passage of Scripture? And when you come to a passage like this, what becomes the, the weight of how you would interpret? Where do you land on an issue like this? Um, sometimes it's called the interpretive hinge. So it's like, well, you can have this interpretation, you have this interpretation. Well, what's the interpretive hinge? Or what details are more authoritative as you interpret? Or what elements of the text speak with a louder voice? And it's just helpful to realize at times, you know, that good and godly men um, sometimes come to different conclusions, and that's totally fine. So um, here's, here's kind of how this would, would break down. Before we look at, and again, I'm going to spend most of our time looking at the qualifications for, for the men. But just because this is a ta the, the task that's been given to me, I just want to kind of walk you through, you know, um, the both viewpoints here. So, for instance, let's just, let's just break this down. There's several good reasons for holding, and I'm, I'm just talking about two different views. So, leave aside the women view, like the women in general. That just does, it makes no sense because it's just totally bookended by deacons. So, we'll ignore that one entirely. Um, I don't really know anybody who holds that view seriously. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you would do with that. But of the two views that are very reasonable and make and make good sense, 
I can make both of these work in this passage. Number one, deacons' wives, and number two, a deaconess. So number one would be that would read this passage and say that in verse eleven, when Paul says t- women, he's describing, <clears throat> excuse me, he's describing the qualifications that must be true of a deacon's wife. And view number two would read verse eleven and say that Paul is now describing the character qualifications that are particularly uh, specific about the female deacon. And so those are the two views that I'm going to talk about. And I'm just going to call the you know the first one the deacon's wife view, the second one um, the deaconess view. So there's several reasons for holding the first view. <clears throat> um, first of all, this one, this word um, translated women. Um, is, is also a word that can mean wife, and that's true. There's, there, it's kind of like there's, there's two words for uh, men in Greek. One can be just mankind in general, and another one can be man in the sense of a husband, like male. Um, and um, this is a word that means distinctly female, and it can mean women in general or wives in particular. And it really does depend on the context. And so sometimes you can hear people who would hold to the first view, the deacon's wife, uh, the deacon's wife view, and they would say, well, okay, so if Paul, um, you know, was really trying to teach that there were female deacons, then why wouldn't he just use the female word, the female version of the word deacon? Like in English, we would say a deacon or a deaconess, <laughs> or something along those lines. And that's how that, would, that argument would go. Um, secondly, the, the, the deacon's wife view would look at this and say, well, in verse 12, it's absolutely true that deacons must be good managers of their children and their own households. So, giving oversight for your family is a critical component of being a deacon. So, in light of verse 12, it's perfectly consistent then to say that you would look at their wives, you would look at the character of the wife, to see whether they are qualified to function as a deacon. And that makes perfectly legitimate sense, and that's makes perfect sense in light of verse 12. Third, view one would also say that that this gives a better explanation of verses 8 through 13, since all of these verses then are understood as deacon's qualifications. They would say, look, there's no jumping around here. It's just verse 8 to verse 13, straight through. It's just talking about deacons. And verse 11 is basically just saying, here's here's what's true of their wives. Um... Some of the other arguments that I don't find nearly as compelling, um, sometimes you'll hear people who believe the first view say, well, the nice thing about <clears throat> a deacon um, is just seeing this as qualifications for deacons' wives. <clears throat> Man, I'm really struggling here. Can I grab it? Can somebody grab me a water? Or any, like even, even a cup of coffee is fine. That's fine. Save yourself the trip, Kenny. Yeah, a cup of coffee is great. Um, no, no, just black. Just black. This is a this is a vocal cord recovery cup. You know, this isn't uh, this is no foo foo coffee. Here. I don't know. I don't drink. I don't drink foo foo coffee anyway. If you do, I apologize. But grow, grow up and drink. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh man, people are getting called out. I stepped into something there. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kenny. May your children rise up and call you blessed. <laughs> oh, it's good. Okay, I'm going to sit down there so it doesn't spill. All right, so uh, one of the re- sometimes I'll hear people say, well, the nice thing about um, interpreting this as 
um, a deacon's wife as opposed to a deaconess is it avoids some sort of confusion about masculine leadership and headship, which it doesn't really strike me as a good argument because um, even if whether whether Paul's teaching deaconess or not, uh, I don't believe that confuses anything about the leadership. Uh, as you see what a deacon is called to do and to be. I mean, I can totally imagine guys on both sides of this issue uh, being thrilled about recognizing a character qualified woman in the church who's going to be entrusted with a check from the benevolence fund to take it over to some widow's house along with a trunk full of groceries to meet a need in, a, in, in her time of need. Uh, whether they call her a deaconess or not, uh, I can totally. I don't think that confuses any sort of leadership role or complementarianism that the Bible so clearly teaches. Another view, another argument for that view would be uh, it avoids the awkward interjection of a deaconess in verse eleven before returning to deacons in verse twelve, and and that's and that's one of the stronger view arguments against my view, uh, which I I do believe that it's talking about deaconesses. Um, and, and that's one of the stronger arguments is that, well, it sounds like he's jumping back and forth. Deacons, verses 8 to 10. Deaconess, verse 11. And back to deacons, verse 12. What's that all about? So those would be the reasons for holding the uh, deacons' wives' view. The deaconess' view, there's several reasons for holding that view as well. If Paul meant um, deacons' wives, and I'll admit this isn't a strong, particularly strong argument, but it's, it's worth mentioning. If Paul meant that um, these are just deacons' wives... He could make that very clear by adding the personal pronoun there. T-H, not T-H-E-R-E. T-H-E-I-R. There, the possessive pronoun. Verse 11 would just mean then simply, likewise, their wives must be dignified. Because if you use the word women with the possessive pronoun there, it becomes clear he's talking about wives. Their women must be dignified. And so adding the personal pronoun makes that patently clear. But of course, that's an argument from silence. He just says, likewise, women. But that would be simple. Interesting, interestingly enough, a very strong argument for this view would be that the word, the word deacon is an interesting noun in Greek. Even the word deacon, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it's going to have one form with a masculine article and a feminine article. That's not common in the Greek language. What that means is it's, the, it's a type of noun that can have either gender, no matter how it's spelled, no matter what its form, which is not common. So like you understand, like most in, in most Western languages have gender for, for nouns. Like, in fact, we, we, we just read this, but in, in verse 8, it says, not addicted to much wine. Well, oinos is a masculine noun in Greek. Wine is masculine. It's, obviously, if it's a personal noun, it's going to have natural gender. So nouns associated with women are feminine, and nouns associated with men are masculine. But just in, impersonal, intangible noun, uh, just, just wine. It's a masculine noun, just because it happens to be masculine in the Greek language. Well, when you get to the word deacon, if a deacon is a masculine noun, it's deacon. Well, literally, it's diakonos. And if it's a feminine noun, it's diakonos. It's the exact same form, exact same spelling. So the masculine noun, the feminine noun, it's the exact same. So it's interesting, um, when, when, when you get to verse 11... If Paul just simply used the plural form of deacon, like he uses in verse 8 and like he uses in verse 12, then that wouldn't distinguish at all. It would be the exact same word. So it makes perfect sense that he would use the word women in the context of treating deacons as a whole. Um, Additionally, 
The New Testament, I believe, does recognize a deaconess in an official capacity, specifically in Phoebe. If you remember Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, uh, it says that she's a deacon. And um, it doesn't, you know, some people say, well, that's just talking about in the general sense of a servant. Uh, and that could be, but the challenge with that view is that in verse 1, Paul explains that she's a deacon of the church which is in Sancria. And it sounds like because it's associating that title with a specific local congregation, it sounds like she actually has that title as an, as a, as an office or a role. And then, what I think is most helpful to notice in verses 8 through 13, well, two things that I think are extremely important, is the, the prep, first of all, the conjunction, likewise. Notice verse 8, deacons, likewise. Verse 11, women, likewise. He uses this conjunction, and so in verse 8, it makes a comparison between the office of elder and the office of deacon, and it makes sense in my reading that in verse 11, to say likewise, He's making a comparison between these women and the office of deacon. Um, if it was still another, just another qualification of a deacon, I don't know why you would need the likewise. It would just be, and their wives must be this. That would be a qualification of the deacon. But he actually says, likewise women. These are their qualifications. Finally, what I found helpful is just when you notice the jumping, what sounds like jumping back and forth really is not jumping back and forth when you pay attention to what's happening in verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10, these are clearly um, qualifications that um, could be applied to both genders. Then when you get to verse 11, it's specifically applied to women because of the word women. Then when you get back to verse 12, you say, well, why did he go back to deacons? Because look at the qualifications in verse 12. Everything he deals with has to do with exclusive masculinity in verse 12. Verse 12 says, deacons must be the husbands of one wife. That's literally, they must be one woman men. A deaconess, neither a deaconess nor a woman, <laughs> no matter what you do with verse 11, they cannot by definition be a one woman man. Also in verse 12, you have good managers of their children and their own households. Now obviously, wives have massive responsibility in the home. You could even say more responsibility, more hands-on responsibility than the men. But nevertheless, what's interesting is that men have the responsibility, the oversight, the rule and leadership of their homes in a unique way. So verse 12 is not arbitrarily jumping back and forth. Verse 12 is dealing with um, uniquely masculine traits pertaining to deacons. So why would I take the time to list all that out? Well, I, I'm not, this is not, you know, if, by way of function in the church, I don't think this is going to make a huge, massive difference, whether, uh, you know, a woman who meets some of these needs and is recognized with those characters has some title or not. It's not going to make a huge difference. What's helpful, though, is just realizing, you know, there's a lot of good arguments on both sides of this issue. And no matter where you land on that issue, I, I, I don't think you're doing violence to the text, but the question then becomes, what's the most important and I even made comments as I walked. Through. I just, I basically just listed out the arguments, and that's. I didn't even, I didn't even do any research on this. That's just a, over a decade of having this argument in seminary class and having pastors go out and writing a curriculum for their own churches, and you know, then, then guys that I taught, you know, come back years later and like, I don't agree with your view, and here's why. And so we spar, you know, go back and forth. Well, that's helpful. And I just basically worked off of just what I remember from those kind of arguments and conversations. And you probably heard me as I was walking through those arguments make comments like, "Well, this one I don't find as compelling." I did that deliberately because I'm trying to, to teach you some hermeneutics here for the first half of this discussion. No matter which side you land on, what I think is most important is to realize we need to make sure that we are landing where the scripture lands by what it actually does say, not what it doesn't say. 
So you understand, like, I made an argument for my own view, saying, well, if Paul was saying the other view, the deacon's wife view, he could have just added the word there. I don't find that particularly a strong argument, because it's an argument from silence. Because the other side could easily say, well, yeah, but if you, if you want to do your view, that you he could have said this, this, and this. And that's true. So rather than speculate about what Paul didn't say, we need to land on what Paul did say. And admittedly, this is a challenging interpretive issue. Um, it's not like I'm sitting there thinking, oh, the guys who are on the other side of this issue, man, they just don't, they're not reading the text. No, they've got, they've got good reasons for their view. That's, it's, a, it's totally viable. But you, when you study the scriptures, what should be compelling for you is what the text does say, not what the text doesn't say. The interpretive hinge has to be the actual language in the actual context of the text that's given to you. John, in, 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 in yeah. practical use of this, like if, if a church decides deacon is, that's it, we're, we're deacon, no deaconesses, or they decide deaconesses, is there, is, is to have deaconesses, is there a, is there a part of this where you, you look at it and say, look, what if I'm wrong? And is there a hedge that should be built there? Um, I, I'm just curious in practice, in, in, in practice, you know, in practice, is there, is it, is it worth considering the what if I'm wrong portion of this? And Absolutely. It's always worth, I mean, it, we should never imagine some, some study that we've done in previous months, weeks, and years is infallible. We should always be going back to the word of God. I mean, I'm not saying everything's up for grabs. I'm not like saying like stuff that's been so established in right. scripture that, yeah, I'm just, every time I open my Bible, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to find today. But, but I am saying, you know what? As I keep studying the scriptures, I always want to be refined. And when somebody comes and they have a different view than I hold, maybe, maybe they say the, like eight things that I've already thought through and already I know are proven wrong in scripture. I can just help them and say, no, those, that wouldn't be compelling because here's what the Bible does say about those issues. And here's the eight of them. And it's like quickly dismissed and we move on. Great, we grew. Or... They bring something and they have reasons why they don't believe it. And they, hear, they say six things that I can just totally quickly dismiss, but then there's the seventh one. And I'm like, I've never even thought about that before. Man, thank you for bringing that to my attention. Let me, let me keep studying the scripture and let me get back to you on that. If I don't say that, I start to canonize my own previous conclusions. And any previous mistake that I've made, I mean, I'm not a perfect student of the Bible. I love that I get to be a student of the Bible, but I am by no means a perfect student of the Bible. I, the last thing I want to do is canonize my mistakes. So I want to be able to come to the scripture and say, man, that's a great, let me think about that. Does that weigh with what the scripture says? We have to be guided by scripture. We have to keep coming under scripture. So certainly we should be able to say, well, what if I'm wrong, wrong about that? Um, and, um, and, this is, and this is one where, you know, I, I hold this position confidently, um, but it's not as though that I'm thinking, you know, that couldn't be overturned if, I, if, if on further review, you know, there's something that would tell me on this context, oh, that's a good point here. Um, you know, I have one particular student who's a particularly, really a sharp guy. He's a pastor, pastor now in another state, a guy that I taught in, in, at TES um, probably about eight years ago. And he, he, was, he was doing some of this stuff for their ecclesiology at his local church. And so he was uh, writing a, a document for his elders on that. And so he kept going back to me and saying, hey, but, you know, you keep, you keep arguing about this. This, con this conjunction here, the Jose Autos in the Greek, it means likewise. You keep, you, that's, that's a strong part of your view. Uh, he, he kept saying, well, how, well, what would make sense to me then is if he's saying likewise deacons, and then verses 8 to 10 is both genders, 
And in verse 11, it's specifically women, and verse 12 is specifically men, that he would use a different conjunction there in verse 11, namely something like, therefore, women must be this, and men must be this. Why wouldn't he use a therefore? And I'm sitting there saying, I don't know why he would use a therefore, but it makes sense to use a lot likewise, because if he's introducing the, the office of deacon and then a female office of deacon, it would make sense then to have a likewise, which is consistently comparing office to office, as he's done throughout the chapter. So we have a different, we have a different disagreement on the weight of Hoseatos in verse 11. I get it. I get it. I don't think he's off his rocker. He doesn't think I'm off my rocker. We just are paying attention to that, trying to say, well, what's, what makes the best sense of the evidence here? And so, you know, that's how, kind of how you just want to say, that's a great point to my friend. I say, yeah, that's a great point. Let me think about that. Um, I don't want to say, I don't have to answer for every what if, and he can't answer for what every, every what if. We have to just answer for what Paul did say. But to say, I'm going to consider that, that's necessary. That's necessary, yeah. Um, I understand how the view of it being a deacon's wife would respond to this, but how would the deaconess view someone who holds that, like yourself, how would you respond to the apostles specifically saying it must be seven men hold the Holy Spirit, and then they did, you know, seven men were chosen? How would you do yeah. that? Yeah, well, no, I, they are. There are seven men, no doubt. Un- undoubtedly, um, uh, so I don't. I don't. I guess I wouldn't necessarily feel any reason to say anything about that. Um, in Acts six, they are all men, and um, I would turn right around and say that you know, Romans sixteen, there's a woman who also has that same label. So yeah, I just. I don't think. I think it's going to be especially when you're dealing with something like the context in Acts six. It's going to make sense. That's going to be entirely men. You're dealing with a massive, massive distribution of massive funds to make sure that needs are being met at a massive level. And that's going to require leadership and oversight. Um, and, and so then, you know, I, I would say that the other view would have to answer why is Phoebe called a, a deacon. Um, but I think it would make sense that your deacons, is by way of protection of the funds and responsibility, that's going to primarily be a masculine role. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a good point. X6 has been, so... So practical argument comes out then. Are we would we as a church be off base not having deaconess in your in your view? No, I don't. No, uh. Uh-uh. In fact, I mean, it just I, I've been I've been in a church for 15 years that didn't have deaconesses traditionally. I mean, that was a church that was um, just celebrated its hundredth anniversary uh, last year. So 1920 to 2020 was the life of GIBC in Jupiter. And in the history of their church, they've never had deaconesses. So the fact that I came there in 2005 and had that view, I didn't feel any compelling reason to say, hey, we need to start labeling women who are doing this function. So if you want church to last 100 years, you don't answer. <laughs> <laughs> what happens? What happens? At, la- ladies, what happens at Build stays at Build? No, just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to preface that. You have to have like a you know the man card to download this off of the website, right? Um, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, but you know it, it's 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 not it's not something. I mean, practically, I I it's more more interest of it's more of my interest in even walking through that exercise to think about the hermeneutical implications, because it just as the practical implication. I mean, I don't, I've thought that through. Really, the only difference I could imagine is I think guys on both sides of that issue are going to appreciate godly women who can minister to, to widows in that particular capacity. 
I think the only difference would be like whether you have a label or not. So it's not like it's not like I feel like any compelling reason. I don't think anybody's ecclesiology would necessarily change as long as you have convictions about what the character qualifications are and what a deacon is. I think that's about the only difference. So I, it's not like I've so for, it's not like I was sitting there for 15 years thinking like we're being unfaithful. You know, I didn't think that. I didn't think that at all. So yeah. Bill, did you have a question? Yeah, I don't have a Bible verse for this, but I was just thinking from experience. So both my grandparents, uh, my grandfather, one was a pastor, and then the other was a deacon. Um, same denomination. And so, like, the one would hold the, you know, deacons only, and the other actually, um, in his experience, he found it helpful to have a woman with him in situations, um, you know, where, you know, if you're ministering to a, a woman who's broken, having all men, he found was really challenging. Mm-hmm. And so um, he, he was a big advocate for the deaconesses. But then there, like you said, um, do they need an office title, right? It could be right. It could be both. But either way, I think we can all agree that women are important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> now he's trying to recover from the previous comment. <laughs> Oh man, we're gonna have to preface this recording by saying, if you, ladies, if you listen, please get to at least uh, 38 minutes and 17 seconds, you know, to, to recover. No, but you're actually right. I mean, and guys on both sides of this issue on the deacon versus uh, deaconess versus deacon's wives are gonna appreciate like um, that particular dilemma and challenge of you know shepherds have a responsibility for their flock, and sometimes my flock is. Um, a single woman or a divorcee or whatever, and there's going to be spiritual needs that are going to be really complicated, and it's going to be challenging for the, the, some, of the, some of the strongest and most able and resourceful women in the church to meet. Uh, but being able to bring a woman in for the long-term discipleship of that is going to be helpful to kind of get that thing going in a right trajectory so she can grow and be a healthy part of the, of the body. So you're absolutely right, absolutely right. Well, guys, uh, okay, so we're, we're successfully through page... Three of 17 pages of notes. So now we get to dive in and really buckle up here. So, okay, here's what I want to do. You guys have that um, that uh, prayer journal or prayer guide, whatever you want to call it. It's just so so helpful and so it's just so I, re- I read through that this week and I loved it. Um, so what I'm going to do is instead of recreate the wheel or repeat what you have in print, I'm just going to make a few comments here on on these qualifications that hopefully can help you even appreciate. That prayer guide a little bit more even. Um, so back to First Timothy three verse eight. Um, we're going to, uh, and regardless of where your view is on this, for the purpose of build, we're going to look at these qualifications in verses eight, nine, ten, and twelve. So regardless of your view, you, you would do the same thing. Um, first of all, what's the first qualification of a deacon? Um, they, you must be a man of dignity. A man of dignity. And this word dignity is a word that pertains to evoking special respect. And some of the translation suggestions in the lexicon would be um, revered, august, uh, august, I guess would be how you'd say it, not august the month, august, Um, holy. There's something sober, There's there's gravitas about a deacon. Similar, the, the noun just means a manner or mode of behavior that in, in indicates um, that one is above what is ordinary and therefore worthy of special respect. So there's something about a guy's life that would set him apart from what's just common. 
when you think about the idea of respectable, you think about the idea of gravitas, you think about the idea of dignity, it's not as though a deacon who has a good sense of humor is disqualified. <laughs> a good sense of humor does not disqualify you from being a deacon. But what would be the character qualification? I mean, if a guy, if, 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 if somebody who knew you semi-well thought of your character and the first thing came to mind is jokester, superficiality, flighty. If you were the kind of guy whose character didn't earn the sense of, oh man, if, if he knew about it, I know he would take this seriously because I'm really burdened right now. That's a good question. That's a good test of this qualification of semnos, which is translated here, um, dignity, or revered, or a sense of gravitas. Do you have that? I mean, we live in a culture that just makes everything um, flippant. Everything becomes a joke. Everything's just flighty and just all about the passing moment and just making everybody laugh. And it's like, what happens? What happened to the men who have sobriety? Men who are dignified. Men who are sitting there saying, hey, we can enjoy the common grace of this life and we can, laughter is a blessing from the Lord, but let's just be honest. There's way more to reality in our existence than the enjoying the here and now. What happened to the sobriety of men who live for eternity? And what the Bible takes seriously, they take seriously. That's, a, that's, that's the part of what it requires, is required for a deacon. You know when he wants to jump on a commercial airline with a pilot who's been honing his stand-up skills? Hey, thank you for flying on the airlines today. Oh, man, it's just, boy, I flew in my arms. And he just goes on with his whole little stand-up routine, right? And he's just been clearly honing it, and that's what he, Now, does humor make you a bad pilot? No. No. But if you're a pilot and all you're known for is having a good routine, but your pre-check, your flight check, uh, and your safety and your skill are questionable, man, this guy's flying. You know, last time he flew, he broke the landing gear. Came down so hard. But man, he's got a good routine when he welcomes those passengers on the flight. It's like you can see, you can see there's a reason why we trust and we can appreciate and we can have this sense of, ah, oh, I can trust this guy. I can trust him. I remember when my firstborn was born, um, we came into the hospital. He was, my firstborn was the only one born in California. The rest of them were born in Florida. And um, the, the anesthesiologist comes in to give April an epidural, and it's two in the morning. And he comes in, and his, he his hair is completely unkempt. I mean, I'm looking at this guy, and I'm like, he looks like he woke up in the alley behind the, ho the, hotel, the hospital. Like, did he just get it? Did he steal somebody's badge? So I'm sitting there getting nervous because he comes walking in with this long needle. I'm like, where did he get that thing? Has he ever used that thing before? I'm like, who is this guy? He's about to stab my wife in the back. And I'm like, so where did you do your studies? Where'd you? He's like, oh, I went to USC Medical. I'm like, I'm thinking he's lying. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, he's so unprofessional. He was just so ill-prepared. And I'm like, I get it. It's two in the morning. The guy's coming in. He, he was professional. He did a good job. But, you know, it set me on. I was not uh, at ease by his appearance. And there's something about that. It's not as though Paul's sitting there saying, hey, what matters for a deacon is the externals, that you can give off a vibe of dignity, but then you get to know the guy, and he's just, everything's flipping about it, you know, everything's flipping in his own heart and mind. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an actual 
sobriety, an actual dignity, an actual respectability, an actual revered character that the church looks at this guy and says, yeah, that makes sense. The church is trusting him with some significant responsibility and he's carrying out the, 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 the mission of the church as, as the elders have seen fit to be the best use of the funds. That makes perfect sense that that guy's in charge of that. He's dignified. Ask yourself, do the words that come out of my mouth make it natural or difficult for my wife, children, and fellow Christians to respect me? Ask yourself that. Do my actual words make it easy or difficult for people to respect me? Ask yourself this. Does the way I spend my time make it natural or more difficult for others to respect me? So I'm basically asking the same question. Just one, the words coming out of your mouth. Number two, your, 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 the way you spend your time. Number three, ask yourself, does the way I handle my money make it natural or difficult for others to respect me? Number four, am I known for, am I more known for taking on more responsibility for the meeting the needs in the church and the mission of the church? Or is it easy for me to coast through a biblically comfortable existence, avoiding as much responsibility as possible? That's a good test of the dignified man. Dignified, revered, respectable, with gravitas. Now those, those men accept responsibility. They take on responsibility. They own responsibility because they want to see the gospel go forth. Number five, ask yourself, do, do I take the meeting of needs in the body seriously? And then number six, does the habit of my life reflect holiness and distinction from the world, or am I just conversant and familiar with entertainment and the drivel of this world? It's a good question about dignity and dignified life. Am I fluent in the things of the scripture, merely conversant with the world, or am I fluent with the world and merely conversant with scripture? It's a good way to think about it. That's the quality of a deacon right there. So I would just say it this way, men, deacon can be, have a sense of humor, but they can't be reputed and characterized as comedians. They need to take the things of God seriously, as seriously as the Lord takes them, and not take themselves seriously. Second, maybe we'll get through verse <laughs> 8 and 9. We'll see how we do here. We've got 12 minutes. Not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. Okay, it's interesting. The Greek language has a word that's literally, in Greek, double-tongued, and that actually means bilingual. <laughs> Two tongues in the sense of glossa means a tongue or a language, so double-tongued in that sense is bilingual. We don't use it that way. But this word means double speech, double talk. So in English, to translate it double-tongued is actually a very good translation, because we don't use double-tongued in the sense of bilingual, usually. Um, so it's a good translation. What Paul is getting at is he's warning against a guy who speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Or, he says two different things. What's he getting at here? What's the issue with double speech? Double speech is what happens when somebody is governed by idols in their heart pertaining to, for example, let's just list a few. Fear of man. If I'm concerned about what this person thinks of me, well, when I'm talking to him, I say it this way. And when I'm talking to this person, I say it this way. And suddenly, my interpretation or how I communicate things starts to get altered depending on who I'm talking to. That's a double-tongued guy. If that guy is characterized by being having double speech, he is not qualified to be a deacon. Double-tongued is somebody who's insincere. 
In fact, uh, in the translation of um, one of the patristics, one of the patristics named Polycarp mentioned this passage, and uh, a good translation of it uh, translated his his use of this word insincere. There's something insincere about a guy who's double tongued, because what's governing his his motives when he's double tongued is not the truth, but the effect that it has. That can be governed by a fear of man, that can be governed by the desire to flatter, that can be governed by all sorts of impure idols, rather than just speaking truth. Now, I'm so glad that no one here has ever struggled with being double-tongued, and we don't have to really think about this, this trait, and we don't have to examine ourselves, right? None of us are liars. You know, I know you know better. I know you know better. Here's some questions that I was thinking about just to try to get at this issue of being double talkers. You probably are not, if you're being a part, you know, being a part of this Bible study, you're probably not known for being a pathological liar. And if I, if you who are married, if I asked your wives, is, is your husband a pathological liar? I would imagine they would say, no, no, not at all. But you know where you start to see some of the same traits of double talk? What about when you get into a conflict with your wife? And suddenly your interpretation of the previous conflict or a previous disagreement, starts to be told with tones and with words, start to exaggerate, or paint yourself in a better light, or indict your wife so that she can realize she's the problem. Suddenly you're using your speech in such a way that it's not being gov- you're not content with the truth. You're not content to just say, well, I remember you saying this, honey. Instead, you say, but you said, and then your wife wife has to say, I didn't say, why do you put that tone with what I just said? Now, I know none of you have ever done that, but I've read about people who do that. And and so for you, and if you struggle with that, then you can benefit from thinking, man, you know what? If I'm not content with simply speaking the truth, that is the same idol that would produce a character qualification that I might be called double-tongued. Because suddenly I'm willing to spin. I'm willing to exaggerate. I'm willing to flatter. I'm willing to put a barb into a comment so that, boy, they just need to understand that I'm right on this one. The truth isn't enough to vindicate me. I need to do it with my speech. Double talk. Ask yourself, does my wife affirm that I'm a man of integrity? Ask yourself, does my speech ever waffle or do I resort to vagaries? You double speak, double talk is going to happen a ton in biblical counseling when you hear somebody resort to vagaries because they don't want to be exposed. That's double talk. Ask yourself this, do I swear even to my own hurt and refuse to change when I have spoken? Psalm 15 verse 4 says that's the man who can dwell on the holy hill. That's the qualification of being a deacon. Not double-tongued. Also in verse 8, not addicted to much wine third qualification of a deacon is not addicted to wine. It's interesting, um, not addicted to much wine could, could lead you to a connotation that would say, it's okay to be addicted to a little wine. <laughs> and that's certainly not what Paul is saying here. It's okay to be addicted to a little, not to, it's okay, not okay to be addicted to much. What it is, it's literally paying attention to much wine, being devoted to much wine. So you're devoted to... Um, wine in significant quantities. Uh, and, and the point is, is that that would reveal a character flaw. That would reveal a character flaw. 
Addiction is pandemic in our culture. We have addictions galore. The, the DSM-5, have you ever heard of the, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual? If you've ever studied um, psychology, um, the um, American Psychological Association, the API, I think, puts it out. But the DSM-1 was like, you know, decades ago. Uh, when, I was doing, when I was studying psychology in college, it was DSM-3. When I was studying against psychology in seminary, it was the DSM-4. And then a few years ago, the DSM-5 came out. In the DSM-5, this is like the uh, cutting-edge psychological um, like canon for secular psychology in America. There are nine types of substance addition, uh, addictions listed. Alcohol, caffeine, cannabis, hallucinogens, inhalants, opioids, sedatives, hypnotics, and anxiolytics. No idea what that is, but it's really bad. Uh, number eight, stimulants. Number nine, tobacco. It lists nine uh, um, chemicals that are listed as op addictive. Those are addictive. And so that's that in this discussion of addictions, that's what they would include in that discussion. And that's interesting that even a secular diagnosis would recognize uh, the properties of all of those, uh, those nine categories at least. The verb, the translated addicted here, it means to be in a state of alert, it means to be concerned about, to care for, or to take care of, it means to continue in close attention with something, to occupy yourself with it, to devote yourself to it, to apply yourself to it. And it's pretty clear, I mean, we can apply ourselves to a lot of things. We can be devoted to a lot of things. You could say somebody's devoted to football, or devoted to working on their car, or devoted, I mean, we could say that to, about all sorts of things, addictions to anything. But it's clear here that He's talking about an addiction to something that is absolutely dangerous. He's talking about something that would be a reveal a character flaw. And what is it about alcohol that makes it so attractive and so compelling? What is it that would reveal a disqualifying sin, a disqualifying sin in the sense of disqualify you from becoming a deacon? The attraction to alcohol is... You know, there's a lot, let's just be honest. I mean, for the young guy who's just got people to impress, there might be, he might be trying to, his fear of man might produce a willingness to party so that the people who, are, who think that partying is a virtue, somehow that gets him something by way of fear of man. So I can see how fear of man would get you there. But what about uh, the guy who is in the church? What about the guy who has a wife and kids, and he's not, he doesn't have anything to impress who's like, who thinks that partying is some sort of virtue. What's the attraction for him? The most common idol behind an, a fetish with much wine, or alcohol, or any inebriation, or any substance that's mind-altering, in my counseling experience, is the idol of escapism. Escapism. It's a discontent with reality, and so I, I don't like the way things are, and either I'm feeling a pain of guilt, or I have memories that I don't want to remember, and it's just attractive, and it's comfortable, and it's relieving, maybe in a church to not even get drunk, but just to get a buzz so I can get some relief, because I don't like the way things are. Discontentment with reality is, escaping from your reality is by far and away the most common motive for alcoholism or any drug addiction that I've ever counseled. Ask yourself this. Am I discontent with reality? Am I discontent with reality? That's a theological problem, isn't it? If I'm discontent with the God who's sovereign 
and I'm discontent with his goodness and his providential control, then I've got a complaint against God. That's a theological problem. Number two, am I drawn toward alcohol? If so, why? Again, the question is not... I'm not, I'm not, I don't even care to ask you, do you, do you uh, drink a glass of, of wine uh, you know, in certain contexts because that might be hospitable or, or whatever. I'm just asking you, are you drawn toward alcohol? If so, then you need to ask the question, why? That's, that's an important question here. If you're drawn toward alcohol, then ask the question, why? Ask yourself this, would family members have any reason to question whether I have complete self-control over my use of food and drink? Would, family, would your family have any reason to question whether you have self-control over your food and drink? Ask yourself this, do I habitually flee from every influence which would hinder the influence of the Holy Spirit? Okay, remember, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, but be, led, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit means being coming under His control, being under His influence. And so he says, do not be drunk with wine, uh, by way of a very direct application, that would also condemn being drunk with any other form of alcohol, and by way of an almost equally direct application, coming under the influence of any chemical that would actually inhibit your sensitivity and the sharpness of your thinking so that the mind God gave you could be subject to the Scriptures. That's what it means to have the Spirit in control of your life. Which is, why, which is so funny why some people have asked me recently, hey, what happens, you know, when... We just, we just passed that proposition. I don't even remember. It was like, I voted. I voted. I still voted in Florida, even though I was here. We just passed that whatever the the, the proposition about um, um, marijuana. Um, so what happens when when marijuana becomes legal? And you know, that was, that's a, a debate. You know, Colorado did it years ago, and so everybody's talking about it. You know, in pastoral circles. Okay, how do you cancel that? Now you can't just say, oh, it's illegal. Yeah, you can't say it's illegal. But there's a thousand things that are illegal in this country that God hates. Like, what does that matter? <laughs> The question is, are we sober-minded? Are we coming under the, spirit, the influence of the Spirit? And so this is why this is such a critical characteristic for the deacon. His, his mind is under the control of the Scriptures. He's not dimming his sensitivities. He's not um, diminishing his inhibitions. He's bringing all of his sensitivities and all of his faculties under the control of the Holy Spirit. And then number five, ask yourself this. Have I considered biblical wisdom when it comes to drinking? Have I considered biblical wisdom when it comes to drinking? All right. Well, we made it through nine pages, so that was that was better than that was better than my normal pace. So anyway, um, guys, I apologize that we didn't get to finish these, but um, I can you know I can even email I can even uh, send these out to Matt. He could email email you guys. Do you have a Do you have an email list for the build guys? Follow on CCB. Okay. Yeah. Great. So I can email you this, and just there's a few comments if you want to read through them uh, on each of those character traits. So I'll make that available to you. Yeah, good. All right, guys, let me just close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much. Lord, we're so grateful for the clarity of your word, and we're so thankful for the benefit that it is to our soul, because, Lord, we want to be useful. We want to be men who are um, effective in this church, uh, because you're worthy of this kind of worship. And so these character traits are so important for useful, effective ministry. And, um, Lord, I, I, um, I, I just thank you for these men, for their appetite, for their desire to grow, and I pray that even this study would be challenging and um, helpful for them as they ask questions of your word. Lord, what do, I, what do I need to see about my life, about my inner soul, my inner man, that I have not yet seen? 
Or maybe they're asking, what is it that I have already seen, but now as I look back at your word, I'm realizing I have been stubborn in. Regardless, Lord, I just pray that you'd give grace so that we would not just see sin and kind of be disgusted by it, but remain in it, but that we would hate it and turn from it. That there would be radical repentance so that there would be an ordering of our lives, not externally first, but an ordering of our inner man, of our soul, of our will and our thought life, so that the externals would bring, would bring glory to the gospel and to your son. You're worthy of that, Lord. You're worthy of that in our lives, in our marriages, in our conversation, in our labors. You're worthy of that in all of any sacrifice we could ever make. And so, Lord, make us men who are dignified, men of integrity, men who are not double-tongued, and men who lead our families well. And so we ask that you do that for your glory, for our joy, for the spiritual welfare of anyone who's under our influence or leadership, and um, for the strength of this church. Lord, thank you for these men. Bless them this weekend as we go about our day and as we gather tomorrow as your people to worship you and open up your word once again. In your name we pray. Amen.